Welcome to the Funds Fanatic podcast, where we chew the cud on the news affecting investment funds and trusts. I'm Daniel Groats, editor of Funds Insider, and I'm delighted that this week uh, joining us we have Mark Slater, a fund manager who's been investing in the UK stock market for more than a quarter of a century. Mark is CityWire AA rated. Uh, he runs the Slater Recovery and Slater Growth Funds. Mark, delighted that you're joining us. Thank you. So, Mark, if I could kick off, um, as I said in the intro, you've you've been invest you've been an investor in the UK stock market for over twenty five years. You've seen uh, your share of stock market crises. How does the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the UK stock market? How does that rank in 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 history? I, well, in my experience, it's it's definitely different to anything else I've seen. Um, I think the main way it's different. I think there are probably two things. One is it's affected everything pretty well. In fact, it's affected most people, at least. Um, Not necessarily all businesses have been impacted in the same way, but it's affected most people. There's no avoiding it. Um, I think the other aspect of it is that unlike in previous crises or crashes, there's no real distinction between good and bad businesses in the sense that a business can be very well managed can be very prudent in terms of its balance sheet and could just have been unfortunate in being targeted by COVID, if you like. Whereas in most crises, it's normally businesses that have behaved stupidly get hurt worst. There's a certain sort of moral dimension to it that sort of works out as it should. Um, Whereas in this case, it's not the case, you know, that isn't happening. So you do have some businesses that have just done nothing wrong, but happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time which is sad, I think, and you know, slightly unfair. Um, so th- th- those are the differences. I mean, the UK stock market has been disproportionately badly hit by uh, mm. the virus, um, uh, and that's affected your funds, which have done better than, than, than the broader UK stock market, but it has nonetheless affected the shares of the companies that you invest in. And, and if I look at mm. um, some of your largest holdings, uh, I mean, a company like IWG stands out as one that the teeth of the crisis as a, as a serviced office provider. How did you react um, as stock markets descended as they did uh, in, in, in February and March? Did you buy anything, sell anything, do nothing? We, we were buying quite actively. We did, well, the first thing we did was look at survivability. Um, you know, and, and just to backtrack a little bit, we were conscious that COVID was very serious. Um, when it was, you know, particularly focused on, on on China. And we were surprised there wasn't more of a stock market impact over here. Um, this is back in January. Um, but we, and we were looking at our exposure to Chinese demand, to complex supply chains, to all the sorts of things that you would expect to be impacted if China had a particular problem. Um, we didn't really join the dots and assume it was going to come over to the West and we, that we would have all the lockdowns and what have you that we've seen. So uh, until it was a bit late. Um, so once it was obvious there was an impact here, um, there, there was already a price impact and it was late really to do much that was going to be very helpful um, on the sell side. And um, we did though review survivability. So that was our most immediate concern. You know, would, did we own businesses that might not get through it? Once we were comfortable that they would get through it, then we were really looking to buy. Um, And we've been very active on the buy side. So we've added quite a lot of new names to the portfolios. So we've added five or six new names, that sort of thing. Um, But we've added 
significantly to the number of our existing holdings as well. You know, 14, 15 existing holdings we've added to materially. Um, so we have deployed a lot of capital. We had a lot of cash. We've deployed a lot of cash in that period. Um, the IWGs of this world are in the very sort of, they're in the complicated category for sure. We own a handful of companies. I would say roughly an eighth of our portfolios are in that category of being directly in the gun sites of, of COVID-19. Um, they're businesses that have done nothing wrong. Uh, our view of, of IWG is that the trend towards more flexible office space, like most trends in relation to COVID, uh, most, most trends that uh, you know, were there prior to COVID, they're going to be accelerated. So I think they will be, their market will actually get bigger. Um, they'll clearly be a winner. Uh, you know, their competitive position is massively enhanced as a result of all the problems for other companies in that space. But they're going to have a very tough year or so dealing with all the problems and complications, you know, tenants not paying, haggling with landlords, all that kind of thing. And so, Mark, you mentioned you bought a handful of, of new stocks. Um, which, which, which companies, what, what kind of sector, where, where were you putting money? Um, quite a wide variety of companies, really. Um, we we um, bought an initial holding in, a, in Countryside, the, the, the building business, um, which has got up a nice amount already. Um, we established a position in Renew. Um, we bought a holding in Dart, which is a business that's clearly very much impacted by COVID. It's a business we've always much admired. Um, and the shares were smashed by, by COVID. We came in on their sort of wasn't a rescue financing, but it was, uh, you know, it was certainly at a very cheap level. If I was going to characterise those those new buys, I mean, looking at Countryside and, and and well, and Dart in particular, it seems it's less companies that you see as gaining any sort of advantage from from uh, the pandemic, more those that have been weakened. But you just think the stock market reaction is is implying that they're weaker than they are. Well, I think yes. I mean, any business that's—I mean, Dart is 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 very severely impacted because for a period they weren't able to operate their business, whereas uh, you know Countryside was operating at a reduced level. So they're different businesses, but we owned quite a lot of businesses already that really are not affected by COVID, and we've added to some of those. But we already own them, so I'm you know I would say roughly in our portfolios, I mentioned about an eighth say 12, 13% of our holdings have, you know, are in areas where there's been shut down or you know, something very severe that's taken place. It doesn't mean they're suddenly bad businesses. It just means you've got to look at them slightly differently. And then the rest of our portfolios, roughly half and half, I would split between businesses that are either mildly benefiting or barely affected. And then, again, another chunk in businesses where there is a clear impact, it's normally not a de- not a demand impact. It's normally a sort of disruption impact. It's relatively modest and it's clearly temporary. And those both of those categories are very easy to analyze. In the first category, you can just ignore COVID completely and just analyze the numbers as, in the way that you would have done before, but obviously a bit more warily. And in that second category, where there's a temporary impact, you've got to quantify it. You've got to be comfortable that that it is very temporary and but again the analysis isn't terribly complicated it's that last category that's complicated 
And I have to say, when it all started off, our hope was that we could make a lot of money in that really complicated category. That has been made more difficult by all the government schemes, which of course were necessary you know, for the country. They were necessary, but it did take away a lot of opportunity for investors. You know, it took away it took away the possibility of making ten or twenty times your money on a business you got to know really well, where the where everyone else thought it might fail, and you took the view that it wouldn't. Um, you know, now failure in the public markets is quite hard. The banks are uh, uh, well. They're being a bit tougher now, but they were very, very, very lenient you know, a couple of months back. Equity markets are providing capital as well. So the failure risk really has gone. That would have provided, it would have created a lot of pain, but it would have, it would have created a lot of additional opportunity that's been taken away. So you know, our thinking has had to, to change as well. You know, when it all started off, we thought we would really try and make money in two areas. One businesses that just were being derated but weren't terribly impacted and two businesses which were really badly affected where we had some sort of better understanding or information advantage and that second category has been more difficult you know because they haven't fallen as much as they otherwise would have done and therefore the upside is is less than it could have been well yeah and you mentioned that you've taken um part in a lot of the fundraisings yeah. launched by the company that you already held yeah presumably you would have without the sort of stimulus that we've seen from government you would have expected to have seen more of those fundraisings and at a much more distressed level than than, than we have seen exactly and and we would have been in the pound seats whereas what's taken place it's actually quite surprising you know all of a sudden the, the markets are awash with money but because I think investors feel supported, at least to a degree, by policy, and companies can do placings in a couple of afternoons at a three percent discount, and they can do twenty percent placings, you know, big ones, you know, Informa, which is not a company we own, but they, they raised a billion in a few days. You know, that would normally be a really big deal. That would be a headline-grabbing thing. And they did it. It was just people queued up to buy them and they were, it was massively oversubscribed. And, you know, and there have been lots of those. So it's been very easy for com- companies have really held the whip hand in this process. They, they know there's appetite. And I think if there'd been more uncertainty, it would have been deeply unpleasant for everybody. But if there'd been more uncertainty, investors would have held the whip hand and uh, there would have been some very profitable, really very distressed situations. So that, that extreme distress was taken away really by by policy. And what that does to your, uh, to your opportunities as an investor, because I think it's probably fair to say that you've made your name as a, as, as a growth investor, but recovery and special situation uh, opportunities, uh, are, are, you know, there's certainly a component of the, of the Slater Recovery Fund I guess you're you're just not seeing the same amount of special situations or recovery situations. Well, I mean, the best recovery situation, I think, is a great growth business that's just deeply misunderstood. And, you know, we had in the last crisis, we we bought a company called Cape and we made 35 times our money in, in a few years. It was very quick because the whole market assumed it was going bust. And our view was that it actually couldn't go bust. It, its working capital profile was such that 
if it did less business, <laughs> the cash poured in. So it, we knew it couldn't go bust, you know, and and we knew that it was broadly speaking in in growth in good growth areas. So that was a fantastically profitable insight, but it was basically a growth business. You know, after once thing once the dust settled, it was began to be perceived as a growth business. But that brief moment in you know the worst point in two thousand eight two thousand and nine, people well the word growth didn't appear and it, it it just wasn't in people's minds. But they've just focused purely on debt, and almost any amount of debt was too much debt. So that's an ideal scenario when people really panic about the best businesses. That happened for a couple of days at the end of March. Literally, well, that, the 23rd of March was that you saw on an intraday basis a number of companies. So a good example is our, our largest holding, uh, Future Group. They fell, there were £15 a share roughly at the end of last year. They fell at one point at the end of March to, to £5 a share, for, only momentarily um, and you know, for, for minutes. But they're now they had a very good trading statement today. They're now thirteen pound eighty, so they're not far off where they started. Um, and that business is barely it's well that business in profit terms is not affected by COVID. In turnover terms, it's slightly affected. Um, so you know, there the, the were the window for that extremely attractive uh, sort of very distressed type investing was incredibly brief. I guess the frustration in your position is that those sorts of opportunities presumably you're, you're fairly limited in, in the extent to which you're able to, to 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 take them up because that would necessitate selling another stock which has been equally unfairly impacted unless you're getting inflows into your into your fund which most funds weren't in in the teeth of the crisis well funny enough we, we've had we had inflows in the teeth of the crisis which surprised me again i you know that's the first time in my experience that's happened. In every other period where there's been extreme dislocation, we have we have seen outflows, not necessarily enormous ones, but certainly the inflows have stopped. That wasn't the case in March. The inflows continued. It was very odd. I, I'm delighted they did, but but it is strange. And we had plenty of of of, of liquidity, so we were in a position to go shopping. And we still we're still in that sort of shopping mindset. There are still good. You know, very interesting things around. So I'm I'm happy with the opportunity set, but I'm just, my point is just that if that extreme distress had played out for even another week, it would have been you know we'd have made a lot of money. But it didn't happen, and I think you know taking a sort of step back from it all, it's probably a good thing it didn't happen. <laughs> so. And those opportunities that you talk about where, you know, you mentioned Cape, uh, a company where you understood something about the business that you just thought the stock market didn't um, and, and you approved right in, in, in the end. Are those sorts of opportunities, are they more prevalent the lower you go down the market cap scale? Because if looking at your funds, um, they seem relatively agnostic about how big a company is. You'll have FTSE 100 companies, you'll have alternative investment market companies in there. But do you see the best opportunities in the smaller companies? I think you're always going to get the greatest scope for mispricing in, in, in smaller businesses, unless there's a lot of dislocation. With dislocation, I think you can get mispricing anywhere. But things become more efficient more quickly as you go up the market cap scale. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. I'm just wondering if you see 
any more constraints on you culturally as, as, as a fund manager? Um, I'm thinking about the way that you run your funds, which is uh, in a relatively concentrated way, and the positions that you have in, in smaller companies uh, and uh, fund managers running big positions in smaller companies. Uh, that's That's been under focus after the high-profile issues for, for Neil Woodford. Uh, more recently, we've had... Um, Alex Darwell, uh, who runs the European Opportunities Trust, being hit hard by um, the collapse of a very big position in, in Wirecard. Do you feel that there is more resistance to taking concentrated, punchy positions now? I would say that in recent years, there's more appetite amongst investors for more concentration and more conviction, I would say. You know, there's a that there's been a, a backlash against all the closet tracking that's taken place in the industry, uh, which I think is a scandal. You know, I mean, the, 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 there was a lot of that going on and people were charging basically for trackers, but they were charging very high fees. Um, so I, I think there is an appetite for concentration. But of course, the more concentrated you are, you are you've got to be right, you know, for sure. The Woodford debacle, I think, highlighted a lot of things that really were self-evident. I mean, it was obvious to us what was happening there three years before it blew up. It was obvious he was there was massive style drift. That is really nothing to do with big or small companies. But he was a guy who was good at big companies. He was no good at small companies. And he was very bad at, you know, unquoted companies. And he just shifted from an area he he was comfortable to an area he wasn't comfortable. That, I think, is a is a problem when people move away from their their last, you know, their, 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 their comfort zone. Um, that's always a problem. I think um, similarly, if someone does have redemptions, they've got to sell the difficult stuff at the same time as the easy stuff. Otherwise, the more illiquid things become bigger and bigger. That's always been our policy. A really big thing as well is not just the liquidity of what you own. It's also got to look at who owns you. And, you know, Woodford had very high levels of concentration of, you know, of investors in his fund and relatively small numbers of them could did cause him very big problems. We have a very, very nicely diverse ownership of, of our funds, which is crucial to us. So there's a, and there's a whole lot of other things too. You know, we, we have very strong um, risk controls. We have people in the business who can say no <laughs> to me. Uh, you know, a lot of it's pretty simple stuff. But to your point, yes, if you've got a very big position, it's, it's much more important you're right. And, you know, so we do a lot of our, our, our emphasis, our work is on issues around that. You know, we, we want to be right on, we want to be right on everything we own, but we particularly want to be right on the big ones. And for those listeners who may not know as much about your funds, um, I mean, you're running was it around sort of thirty stocks in each, uh, more or less than that. Uh, no, it's it typically sort of forty-five to fifty. That would be the even forty to fifty is the norm. And uh, so that's uh, the more kind of concentrated, fewer stocks type approach that listeners might know from the likes of Terry Smith or, or Nick Train, who are also known as uh, not buying and selling trade um, shares very often. Uh, you're you're more active than that. Well, no, we we've owned a lot of our bigger holdings. We've owned for ten years, so quite a long time. We're long term, but you know, occasionally, like last year, we had seven bids in the portfolio. That's much more than usual. We don't seek them out. They they came to us, and that you know, our average over the years is probably one or two. So that was a function last year of the UK really being on sale, as far as international investors are concerned. 
And I think if not for COVID, that would have continued this year. So, you know, we get the odd bid, we things of that like that happen. But our our top ten doesn't change much um, over the years. But you know, if we find a smaller business and that it might be a one percent unit, if it's a very small company, we're not going to size it you know, beyond 1% or thereabouts, because it wouldn't make sense from a liquidity perspective. So liquidity is something we take very seriously. But, you know, we're long term in our in our thinking, we're not in and out of companies at all. And you mentioned the UK sort of being on sale uh, last year. And I, I just wonder what your view is on the prospects for the for the UK stock market now, because, you know, obviously, it's been, um, under the cloud of, of Brexit uncertainty for um, a good number of years. And, and there was that um, lifting, um, it, it seemed, at, at the end of last year with the um, emphatic election result. Uh, mm. and, and then we've had coronavirus and that's been uh, a pandemic that has affected the UK stock market disproportionately more than, the, 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 than other markets. So I, mm. I just wonder where you see, where you see the market and, and its value at the moment. I, I think since the referendum in 2016, there was a lot of concern over Brexit. I think in 18 and 19, the concern really became more about Corbyn. And that risk was eliminated at the end of last year. And I also think the, the Brexit risk is obviously still there. You know, It's not something one can dismiss out of hand. But I, I, I think people are more relaxed about it because there's more of a sense of purpose with the majority government. So... I think the two things that really worried people, one's gone and one is diminished. And that's why I think, and, and, and all these bids by, I mentioned, by the way, most of those took place before the election result. So this was, you know, overseas investors taking a view, you know, they were buying strategically, um, but they were in their minds buying very cheaply. And they had the benefit of the currency as well. That will continue in my view, because the UK is cheap on an international basis. I think the UK, you know, it clearly has lagged other markets. Europe isn't far ahead of us. You know, Europe and the UK are not towards the bottom of the pile. That, I think, is mostly a function of, of tech or the lack of tech in the indices. Um, and you can see that in America. You know, The NASDAQ is the best perform- performing American index by far. And the other indices all do have a lot of tech in them. So I, that, I think, would explain the behaviour of, of, of the UK market. And, and obviously the UK market and the UK economy are, are, are two different things. I, yeah. I'm just wondering sort of what uh, what proportion of your fund is exposed to uh, the UK domestic economy and, and how your view on the UK economy colours that? We're roughly, and it's very difficult to be precise on these things, but we're roughly 50% exposed in, in profit terms to, to the UK, you know, that's right to the nearest probably 5% or so. So, um, but we're very happy to own a, a business that's entirely in the UK. So we haven't sort of sought that. We haven't targeted a, a percentage. You know, if we find a really good niche business in the UK that's growing nicely and there are really clear drivers of growth, we're very happy to own it. We invest in the UK because we know the UK market well. And it's easy for us to check things out because we live here. So, and we've got strong networks here and all of those things. Whereas, you know, we find a business in another market, it's a whole lot of lot of work um, and it's more complicated. So, you know, look, the UK is, a, it's a big, one of the biggest economies in the world still. There's some great businesses here, 
but there are a whole lot of businesses that I would never consider owning. You know, our our initial screens in our process eliminate 95% of the market almost immediately. So we're only really looking at 5% of the market. And then and then of that, we buy a proportion. So it's uh, most companies are just not of interest to us because they're not growing or they're not generating cash or or they're too expensive, or maybe some other reasons. So, you know, one, if one's careful and one's um, you have high standards about what you buy, then I th- you can end up with very interesting businesses here. And right at the beginning of this, we talked about some of the the companies that you own had, that had been most uh, adversely affected by coronavirus. I guess mm. as we're kind of rounding off um, the interview, uh, we'll do so on a, on a more positive note. Um, uh, some of the companies that you that you have that have um, been relative winners. I mean, I'm looking at your, your fact sheets and, and I'm seeing Codemasters in there, which mm. uh, the computer game stock, which is which has done well. Uh, which which companies would you, would you highlight? Well, yeah, I mean, Codemasters has. You know, I mean, gaming generally has been seen as a beneficiary of, of of lockdown because people are stuck at home twiddling their thumbs. So that you know, um, well, in our industry we haven't been, but but other in other industries people have been stuck at home with not much to do. And Codemasters, in my view, is the cheapest quoted gaming company here. It's very well managed. Um, it's got a very clear specialization in driving games. They've now got a good range of different franchises as well. So. I'm very keen on the business. The shares, you know, had a were, were knocked at one point during the year, but they they've been recovering nicely and they're they're well into new high territory. But I still think they've got plenty of um, mileage. Future, which is our largest holding, which I, I touched on, you know, they had a trading statement this morning, and the shares are up fourteen percent today. On on, um, they've confirmed that they think they'll be at the upper end of the forecast range for the year to the end of September. And again, that's a business. I would have thought there would have been more of an impact actually um, from COVID, but their model is they they buy content and they monetize it online. Some of the content they buy is magazine content. And obviously magazine sales have been killed because shops that sell magazines have been closed. But what we've been pleased to see is, yes, there's been some impact in the magazine space, but it's been more than offset by the best part of the business, which is the e-commerce related uh, part of the business. That's the bit we're actually interested in, and that's been doing really well. Um, it's very high margin um, business as well. So we've been pleasantly surprised by, by future. And um, you know, like anything, I you know, I, I don't think COVID was purely good or purely bad for any business. Certainly for the those that aren't particularly badly affected, there'll, there'll be some problems. Even Amazon, they've been seen as a massive beneficiary, but they've had to take a lot of people on. They've had to, you know, incur a lot of costs. But uh, the business, the best businesses, have been able to take it in their stride, and they'll come out of it very strongly. And that's the key focus. Is I, I think you've got to look ahead at the landscape in six, twelve, eighteen months, whatever it is, and ask yourself, you know, will this business? you know, be, be trading well, but also will its competitive position have been enhanced? And um, that's a crucial question. And most of the companies we own, we, we get strong yeses on, on those questions. Well, Mark, that's a great point on which to end. And thanks again for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Great pleasure. Thank you. 